What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is still going on? Well, the Taliban are still in charge of Afghanistan. There you <laughs> go. We check. We're in a new era here. And the resurgence of the Taliban and their taking control in Afghanistan is obviously going to have a, a number of impacts. It's going to have an impact on our relations with China. It's going to have an impact on our relations with Russia. It's having an impact already on our relationship with our NATO allies, our ability to defend Taiwan. This has global implications for the United States foreign policy. And then, of course, we need to figure out how we're going to deal with the Taliban government, which has now taken power. They are sort of on their best behavior right now, but we don't know how long it's going to last. What do you think, Danny? I think that this is, you know, an undesirable outcome. We've made that clear. <laughs> That's the understatement of the year. Yes. Yeah, we've made that clear in previous podcasts, right? Yes. As, as the Japanese emperor said, the war has not necessarily proceeded to our advantage, and in this case, by our choice, unlike the Japanese. But the question for us now is management. The question for us now is getting those people out who need to get out and ensuring that Afghanistan doesn't become the global headquarters for the worst of the worst of the terrorists that want to kill us. And that is going to require a great deal more effort and attention than A, the Biden administration has proven itself willing to give, but B, that we historically have not been willing to give. One of the reasons why the Taliban came to power in the 1990s was exactly what has been going on now. We had something important going on there. We finished with that something important. We said, wow, this really seems like kind of a hellhole. We got the hell out of Dodge. Mission accomplished. Great applause to us. And the Taliban took over and we took our eyes off the ball. So I, I literally just a week ago rewatched the movie Charlie Wilson's War, right. which is this fascinating account of how this congressman played such a central role in arming the Mujahideen in the fight against the Soviets. And then once the Soviets pulled out, basically the Reagan and then Bush administration sort of said, all right, we're done, you know, no interest here. And he was desperately trying to get them to build schools or do something or remain engaged in the fate of Afghanistan. And I remember there's a scene where he talks about how, you know, somebody said, talk to the president the other day. He said, is that Afghanistan thing still going on? Maybe we can play the clip. One million dollars for school reconstruction? Oh, shit, Charlie. Listen. It's like the congressman from Kabul. <laughs> Did you hear me say it was a million, not a billion, for school construction? You know, we heard you. Everybody heard you, buddy. They heard you in Dover, Delaware. Well, I sure hope I'm not annoying you, Bob, because that's the last thing I want to do. Look. I was in the Roosevelt Room with the president last week. You know what he said? He said Afghanistan. Is that still going on? Well, it is. Half the population of that country is Charlie. under the age of 14. Half the population is under the age of 14. Now think how fucking dangerous that is. They're gonna come home and find their families are dead. Their villages have been napalmed. And we helped kill the guys who did it. Yeah, but they don't know that, Bob, because they don't get home delivery of the New York Times. But even if they did, it was covert, remember? This, this is what we always do. We always go in with our ideals and we change the world. And then we leave. We always leave. 
But that ball, though, it keeps on bouncing. What? The ball keeps on bouncing. Yeah, we're a little busy right now reorganizing Eastern Europe, don't you think? We've spent billions. Let's spend a million on H.R. 118 and rebuild the school. Charlie, nobody gives a shit about a school in Pakistan. Afghanistan. I remember after 9-11, there was a debate that broke out over who was responsible for the attacks of September 11th. And some on the right said, well, it was the Clinton administration because we had these escalating attacks going on in the coal and the embassies and all the rest of it, and they didn't respond to it, and that emboldened them and led to 9-11. And some said, well, the Bush administration, because they didn't respond to the intelligence, that they were determined to attack us here at home. And I remember thinking back that, no, actually, if you really want to know what the cause was, it was going back to that period. It was the late Reagan and early Bush administration where we just decided that what happened in Afghanistan didn't matter to us. Right. And if the Taliban came to power and these 8th century Islamist radicals abused their people and all the rest of it, what difference does that make to people here at home? And it made a big difference when the planes hit the Twin Towers in the Pentagon. And so I fear it's like this cycle repeating itself where now we're like, okay, sorry that we're going to go back to the days of the Taliban and the days of women, you know, wearing burqas and girls not being allowed to go to school and all the rest of it really doesn't affect us all that much here at home. And I'm afraid we're going to find that it does. Right. So, you know, this really is an interesting challenge because, of course, I think that the Biden administration has taken and has almost explicitly said, we can't care about every shithole out there where there are a bunch of Islamists. That's a very Trumpian phrase. Yes. Funnily <laughs> enough, it's a very Trumpian phrase, but it's very Biden-esque policy. It is, isn't it? Right. Yes. So, we, you know, we can't keep troops in Africa and go to Mali and Somalia and you know, Nigeria and every single place where a Salafi rears his head and bring in the cavalry because we just can't afford to pay attention to that. And that is where they have relegated Afghanistan. And I think the difference here is that Afghanistan is, number one, where this has happened before. Number two, it is a touchstone for al-Qaeda. I mean, what does al-Qaeda mean? It means the base. Now, obviously, it has multiple meanings to its members, but this is the place where all of these men went to fight in the 1970s and 1980s. This is where they fought against the Soviets. This is where they got their jihadi stripes. Mm -hmm. right? And so because of that, I think that now- And it's now, where they brought down an empire. Right, they brought down one empire, the Soviets, and it is going to be too tempting, too symbolically important for them not to go back even if we take at face value what the Taliban tell us, which is we're not going to let those guys back in again like the old days. But not only that, I agree with everything you just said about its symbolic importance and what a touchstone it is to the jihadi, but also just from a pure strategic calculus, one of the things Biden talks about, we had Fred Kagan on the podcast a few weeks ago where we debunked this. Well, we got this over the horizon policy. Well, oh, we yeah. don't. That's how we killed uh, seven children and three family members the exactly, other day. Exactly, yes. Over yeah. the horizon. And actually, that was when we still had a CIA base in Kabul. We still had intelligence boots on the ground when that happened. We don't have those anymore. But one of the points he makes is, well, we go whack terrorists all the time. We whack them in East Africa. We whack them in Yemen. We whack them in Iraq. We whack them in Syria. We don't have boots on the ground everywhere. One, we do have boots on the ground. But two... They've got coastlines. It's easy to reach them. Afghanistan is a landlocked country where the only entryway is either over Pakistani or Iranian airspace. And as Fred Kagan, I think, very artfully said, 
we have to find terrorist needles in 15,000-foot haystacks in the Hindu Kush mountains. If there was ever a country that was built to be a base to hide jihadi movements before they emerge to attack us, it's Afghanistan. So you have both the history and also there's no other place in the world that is better for jihadists to train, hide, and prepare their assaults. But still, <laughs> look, you know, I think a lot is hanging in the balance right now. For us, there are the priorities. It's getting out Americans. It's getting out the people who did so much for our troops that were on the ground and to who we owe a debt of honor. And we talked about that last week with Elliot Ackerman. But I think that then there is this question of how to manage what happens in Afghanistan next. I mean, I can tell you, having done this for a decade in the U.S. government, we are not good at this. I said repeatedly on the subject of Iraq and Iran that I don't know why we think we can manage politics in foreign countries when we can't manage politics in our own country. But that is, in fact, what's going to be required. If, in fact, we have the Taliban to a certain extent where we want them, they are now supplicants. Please recognize us. Please. We have a tiny, tiny bit of leverage. Are we going to use that appropriately? I don't see this administration given how they performed in Afghanistan, given how we exited in Afghanistan, given our failure to coordinate with our actual NATO allies, given how we screwed our actual NATO allies over this quad agreement with submarines for Australia, which I'm otherwise all for, of course. But the diplomatic ineptitude, the inability to chew gum and walk that I'm seeing coming from the Biden administration, that I think is going to be fatal to keeping the Taliban on the straight and narrow, where they are the ones trying to propitiate us as opposed to we being the ones trying to. So what you're saying is the incompetence we have witnessed is a foreboding or foreshadowing of the incompetence to come. I think that's true because there's yeah. no reason to believe that it wouldn't be so. And here, let me jump in yeah. because one of the things that also people need to realize is that the Taliban are evil. They're radical. I don't think they've changed their stripes, even if they're playing a game. But the other point that people don't realize is that they're dumb. You actually met with the Taliban back in the 1990s in the Senate. And you have a story that I thought was fascinating that our listeners would like to hear about your sit down with the <laughs> leaders of the Taliban in Washington, D.C. I was with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee then, and somebody who was actually representing the Taliban, who had recently come to power in Afghanistan, wanted to meet with us. And, you know, my general feeling is if somebody wants to meet with you, that's probably a good thing to say yes, if you hope to help shape policy in their direction. They came, they walked in the door, they did look, you know, like the Taliban. And I had invited along my Democratic counterpart, somebody who was subsequently an official in the Obama administration, and he's of Indian descent. I mean, he's an American, but he's of Indian extraction. And they demanded to know who he was. And I said, well, this is my counterpart. This is my Democratic counterpart. I invited him. Well, you didn't tell us he was going to be there. And I said, well, I didn't need to tell you he was going to be there. But I do things that way here in the Senate. And here he is. No. We know who he is. And then they turned to him. We know who you are. We know what games you're up to. And I said, I'm sorry, this is not your meeting and you can't do that. I invited them to leave and they wouldn't. We had to call the Capitol Police. <laughs> then they obviously repented of their ways, called us back from some other Senate office to try to get in. When I said no, came back to the door and started banging on it. We had to lock ourselves in from the Taliban and call the Capitol Police to escort them out of the building. What I'm trying to say here is not, this is obviously, a, you know, a sort of an amusing vignette, but what it tells you about these guys is, I think, how they manage diplomacy. 
which is, you know, yes, they're bad guys. Yes, they have different ideas than we do that are unacceptable about women, about gays, about so many different things. But in addition, they're really just not diplomats. <laughs> and so that's going to make it even harder to manage, I think. So one of the things that Mark and I wanted to do, we've done a really sort of intense series of podcasts on the question of Afghanistan, because we do feel like this is an inflection point for the United States, hugely important, not just for our relationship with our adversaries, but also with our allies. But it's important to get a picture of what's going on on the ground, what the opportunities are, what the situation is, and what the challenges are going to be for the United States. Who is our adversary? Who is our enemy? And can this change? We asked somebody who has been doing absolutely magnificent reporting. You've probably seen on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, reporting and photography. Yaroslav Trofimov is an author. He's the chief foreign affairs correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. He used to write a column on the greater Middle East. And before that, he was the Wall Street Journal's bureau chief in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. He's a much awarded journalist, and rightly so, and an author. He's literally been on the ground while this has all been unfolding and recently came out of Kabul, but is going back. He's headed back in October. He's a guy with a lot of daring do, and I enjoy following everything he does, and I'm really glad it's him and not me. But he was gracious enough to join me and Mark on the show this week. Here's our interview. Yaro, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back. So you've just flown from Afghanistan to Qatar. There's so many people who are hoping to do that. How did you get out? Well, you know, uh, the Qataris are playing a big role as an interface between the rest of the world and the new regime in Afghanistan. So they do run all these evacuation flights. They also fly international dignitaries. So they flew in at the head of the World Health Organization on the C-17, and I got right back on the same plane. Well, that is what I call convenient. There are about a thousand questions I want to ask you. You've been writing, doing terrific reporting. Your own iPhone photo was on the front page of the paper, which was <laughs> pretty impressive. Twice. And uh, Twice. Forgive me for getting it right only half of the time. But let me just sort of ask you a really general question first. You drove all over. I don't know if you want to talk about the route you came in, but certainly I've seen, you know, your pictures from Mazar, your pictures from Logar, your pictures from all over, in addition to a hiking trip just outside of Kabul. Tell us a little bit about what you saw. It's really a bizarre time. It's sort of a little bit of Alice in Wonderland moment because all the places that used to be dangerous are suddenly safe. And the places that used to be the most safe, like the Panjshir Valley, are now the most dangerous. The same goes for Kabul. The green zone is sort of abandoned and there are stray dogs running around. And it's where we used to have a house. And that's where the American embassy still is, locked up and mothballed. Those are the most unpleasant areas of Kabul now. So traveling around is really eye-opening because, you know, mental geography of Afghanistan, places like Logar, an hour and a half away, were an impossible distance away. To be able to go there in the past, you had to go on an embed, fly with the military, you know, spend five days at the base, go on a patrol, you know, in full body armor, and still not be able to properly talk to locals. Now you just hop in a car and go. The Taliban really are craving international presence and acceptance recognition now, and they're not getting any Western diplomats yet, so at least they're getting journalists to come in. And so for now, we have this unprecedented honeymoon of being able to do what we want for now. How long will it last? Probably not very long, because right now the Taliban don't have any internal opposition to speak of militarily. After crushing the rebellion in Panjshir, they don't have any political opposition either that is significant. 
but that will change because the economy is melting down. People are getting paid for two or three months now. The banks are living in withdrawals to $200 a month. And there are huge lines of people trying to get to their savings. So things will go bad. And once the things go bad, probably will not be as welcome there. And probably there will be more and more restrictions on, on how to do our job there. So you mentioned something interesting, this honeymoon period. It's a little bit of a counter narrative because, of course, when we look at the dramatis personae of the Taliban government, these do not look like people who want a honeymoon with anyone, let alone the outside world. We've got Haqqani, we've got the former head of the government, the emir of the Taliban. We've got a whole roster of people who either have wanted signs on their heads or soon will. And yet they're looking for this outside recognition. So they're on what passes with them for good behavior. What's going on? Well, you know, they're in charge now. So they are the government and they want the $9 billion of assets that are frozen by the U.S. and frozen. They want aid to resume. They want embassies to reopen. They want to be accepted. And it's really bizarre on the personal level. You know, I was in Afghanistan for a long time. And I remember 2008, 2009, I was a guest of the Serena Hotel when Haqqani is attacked it. The reason why Sirajin Haqqani has this $5 million bounty from the FBI on his head is because an American citizen was killed in that hotel. Well, you know, the other week, his brother, Anas Haqqani, who is also a senior member of the Haqqani Network, came by to say hi to us, to have tea with us, and say how much he's a friend of the foreign media and how he respects our courage for coming to share the city with him and ignoring, you know, the terrible propaganda about how bad they are. So there is really this charm offensive going on. And, you know, like recognition is not a black and white thing. It's continuum. And they have some successes in this continuum because unlike in the 1990s where there were no embassies except for Pakistan, UAE, and Saudi Arabia, in Kabul, a lot of embassies remained, Turks, the Chinese, the Russians, the Qataris. And some Europeans are tempted to sort of slightly reopen contacts on a diplomatic level. And the UN is coming there. Every couple of days, a leader of a UN agency is coming there to talk about resuming humanitarian aid and resuming dialogue. You know, the head of the UN mission in Kabul sat down with Sarajuddin Haqqani, the very same one with the $5 million bounty on his hand the other day. So you say that they're on their best behavior when it comes to dealing with the foreign media. But we just had, for example, Elliot Ackerman on the podcast last week as a former Marine captain, mm-hmm. former CIA a paramilitary officer who's been involved in this Project Dunkirk to get people out. Yeah. And he played us a recording of somebody who he knows who was a translator reached out to him and was in desperation because his brother had just been assassinated by the Taliban. He didn't know how to get out. We're seeing all these stories of people being executed. There was a picture on the Internet of a woman who like literally they took her brain out of her skull with a screwdriver. So how do you balance these two things that they're on this charm offensive with the media, but they're doing some pretty awful things to Afghans? Aren't they? There are awful things being done to Afghans. No doubt, people are being killed. But so far, it's an exception. It's not the rule. I mean, if we talk about the number of people who were executed in the last month, it's dozens, probably hundreds in a country of 40 million people. And a lot of that is not necessarily the official Taliban policy. Their official policy is that we forgave everyone. We want everybody to come back, policemen, you know, government officials. The mayor of Kabul is still the old mayor of Kabul, who was an American citizen and, you know, was a pilot for United Airlines. On a personal level, on the other hand, you know, it's been 20 years of war. And so when I speak to the Taliban fighters, they say, well, yes, our leadership told us to forgive and forget, but how about, you know, my 10 relatives were killed? So it's inevitable that there will be revenge. 
the Taliban leaders are probably tolerating this because they also want to intimidate, especially members of the former security services. The way they talk is that they're very mindful of what happened in Iraq with Ba'ath Party and with the former military that was disbanded and became the core of the insurgency. So I think, I think frightening those people is one of the key priorities for them. But on the other hand, the worst fears so far have not materialized. So it's not sort of like a Khmer Rouge takeover or, you know, everybody shipped off to the countryside and executed for wearing glasses. The vast majority of the former public servants are invited to go back to the jobs. And a lot of the people who have fled are fleeing not because of what is happening now, but because of the fears of what will happen six months down the line, a year down the line, or more. You know, I remember even just before the fall of Kabul, I went to see the director of the National Museum, which houses those treasure troves of Buddhas and other pre-Islamic art that was restored after it was smashed up by the Taliban in the 90s. And he said, look, when they came in 1996, they also told us that we'll preserve art in 2001 to go and blow up the Buddhism Bamiyan. So people are projecting and extrapolating the reality of today into the future. And that future could be scary because once the Taliban do have internal challenges, they will be brutal. So you say, I guess, by the standard of what might have been, things aren't as bad. And, you know, I mean, again, it might be a silver lining in what is otherwise a terrible black cloud, but the basics are the same. So this is going to fashion itself, even if they're not executing people left, right and center, this is going to fashion itself as an Islamic emirate. And an Islamic emirate does not look like, you know, the corruption may look the same, <laughs> but but in terms of the rights and freedoms of women, in terms of the rights and abilities of ethnic minorities, in terms of all of those questions, which really are front and center on our minds, they have not given any ground, even for the honeymoon part. And so what do you see? It depends what you compare them to. So... I think the most serious issue is women's rights, because that is the issue that is fundamental. Obviously, half the population is women. And there is disagreement within the Taliban about what sorts of rules to implement. Some of them say, well, you know, women should work. They don't need a male guardian. You know, schools should reopen. And actually, the Haqqanis are the more socially liberal and moderate part of the movement, even though politically they were more radical and engaged in suicide bombings and all that stuff. The Kandaharis are more conservative, and that is sort of the biggest problem going forward, and I think the biggest challenge for the society and for the international community. On the issue of, for example, freedom of demonstration and freedom of the media, they're probably, as of now, more liberal than most countries in the Middle East. There were women demonstrations that were dispersed, but it was arrested, was freed. They arrested and beat up some journalists, but nobody stayed in jail more than overnight. So in... I could name a dozen countries in the region where things would have been worse. For now, again, because for now, that challenge is not serious to them. It's not existential. Let's talk about the proximate reason why we invited you on, in addition to what you saw in Kabul. You wrote a terrific piece in the journal Saturday Review called In Leaving Afghanistan, the U.S. Reshuffles Global Power Relations, looking at how mm -hmm. the U.S. exit from Afghanistan will affect our relations with China, with Russia, and all the rest of it. Talk to us a little bit about Let's start with China. How do you think this exit will affect both our relations with China, our ability to counter China? Will China be emboldened in aggression against Taiwan? What are your thoughts on China? Well, China actually neighbors Afghanistan, unlike the U.S., which is long distance away. So whatever happens now after the U.S. withdrawal affects China in probably a much more direct way. 
They have the Uyghur Islamists who were affiliated with Al-Qaeda, who are in Barakshan, northeastern Afghanistan. And it's China that it will have, together with Russia, to bear the costs of any future insecurity there much more directly than the U.S. And it's a double-edged sword. Yes, on one hand, the U.S. did show that it's abandoned its allies and friends in Afghanistan, and the way the withdrawal was carried out angered and alarmed not just Taiwan, but most of the allies in Europe as well. But on the other hand, the U.S. has always said since President Obama that it will leave Afghanistan. The original departure date was 2014. So that was not a commitment that was timeless or ironclad, unlike the commitments to actual formal allies that don't have an expiration date, or like the commitment to help Taiwan defend itself. And if you look at the military side of it, while China was building up its Navy and its global capabilities, and the U.S. military for the last 20 years was focusing on how to fight people who make fertilizer bombs, and that took away from the development of capabilities that are used to deter peer rivals that are very different. You know, whole generations of U.S. military officers had to fight an enemy that doesn't have an air force or like long-range artillery missiles, which shapes the entire culture of the force to an extent and make it harder to defend against a different kind of enemy. I think in part, that's certainly the argument that President Biden has made is that, you know, we focused on the guys in the dirt at the expense of the guys with the aircraft carrier. I'm not actually terribly persuaded by that argument from him, although we recognize that with an all-volunteer army, we have definitely focused on the counterterrorism fight more than on the global race. So when we talk about who's still in Kabul, it tells you a lot about who's playing that great game still. You've talked about the Chinese, but the other people who are there, in addition, of course, are the Russians. Now, they have a long history, (laughs) a long and painful history, and we can now insert cliche of the moment, what, graveyard of empire or something, something, something. But on the other hand, as you rightly say, the Chinese are neighbors. The Russians aren't neighbors, but they're certainly much closer than we are and much more effective. They are sort of neighbors, yes, because all the Central Asian states have very porous borders with Russia and they're suppliers of labor. So like once people get into Tajikistan and beyond, you know, Russia is not far. What role do you think the Russians are going to play? Is this just opportunism, low-hanging fruit for them like Syria might have been? Or is this part of some broader plan? I think it's containment. Unlike the past in the 90s where all these neighboring countries were playing great game against each other. The Iranians were supporting one faction, the Russians another, the Pakistanis supporting the Taliban. Now all these countries are more or less on the same page because their interest is that, A, the Taliban do not help anymore the terrorist movements that endanger them, being TTP in Pakistan or Jundulai in Iran or the Islamic movement in Pakistan for Central Asia or the ETIM for, for the Chinese. And that the economic situation there doesn't become so desperate that millions of refugees start coming across the borders. So there is a a very unusual degree of coordination between all of them, from China to Pakistan to Iran to Russia. And while on the level of pure propaganda, they're all saying they're very happy that the Americans got a bloody nose and left, at the end of the day, they are the ones dealing with the fallout from it on the practical level. And so the triumphalism is mostly in the media, not among the people you actually talk to in the halls of power. Interesting. Speaking of Russia, so you mentioned the former Soviet republics. That was a big focus of U.S. foreign policy after we went into Afghanistan, was building our relations with these former Soviet republics. There was a strategic opportunity there because of what was happening in Afghanistan to build relations there. I went to every stand with Secretary Rumsfeld. He spent a lot of time in Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan. We called them our one-night stand tours around the region. 
wither our relations with the stands now? Are they going to be back more into the Russian orbit or is the U.S. going to be able to maintain those relationships we built? Relations with the stands have, especially Uzbekistan, which is the most important of them, deteriorated a long time ago when the U.S. protested against the massacre in the Andijan Valley more than 10 years ago. And the Uzbeks closed down the U.S. bases there and kicked the U.S. out. Now, you know, the tussle in that region is between the Chinese and the Russians. The Chinese have basically taken over most of the levers of the economic environment there, and the Russians are still providing security, though there are Chinese troops in Tajikistan. So in that environment, places like Uzbekistan are trying to also triangulate and bring the U.S. in, but they wouldn't, for example, accept any U.S. counterterrorism basic from there because the Chinese and the Russians were against it, and the U.S. leverage there is quite limited. That's for sure. Now, there's another great friend of ours who's also got a finger in the Afghan pie, and I I don't know who to believe. I'm going to choose to believe you here, because I don't quite understand how the Pakistanis see it. Obviously, they've long supported the Taliban up to a point. They've supported, in addition, the, you know, Salafis up to a point. My friends in the Panjshir Valley have suggested that the Pakistanis were helping the Taliban to weed out and assault the Afghan resistance forces. I don't know whether that's just an excuse or not. What did you see on the ground? What is your theory of the role they're going to play? Well, you know, Pakistanis have been backing the Taliban since their creation. It was Benazir Bhutto back in the 90s who started that. And the language of Pakistan was always very duplicitous. On one hand, they were always denying that. On the other hand, evidence of their support was controvertible over the years. But I think the Pakistanis didn't quite bargain for this. What they wanted is a strong Taliban, but not this total, clean, sweeping victory that eliminated everyone else. Because now the Taliban are in a very strong position, and they don't really feel like they owe anything to the Pakistanis. The Pakistanis are asking them to stop sheltering the TTP, the Pakistani Taliban, that are fighting against the Pakistani state. Now also with weapons that you know came from the American taxpayer through the Afghan army, through the Afghan Taliban. And the Afghan Taliban have refused to act against them so far. So Pakistan, obviously, is one of the countries that has retained an embassy in Kabul. The ambassador is very active there and is meeting with senior leaders. But that dependency relationship now has ended. The Taliban are in charge of Afghanistan, and they can tell not of the Pakistanis now. And the Pakistanis are not used to that. So let's talk about the reason we went into Afghanistan to begin with, which was al-Qaeda. So the Biden administration justifies its withdrawal by saying that al-Qaeda does not pose a threat to the United States from Afghanistan to the American homeland. But the deputy director of the CIA testified last week on Capitol Hill that they estimate that al-Qaeda may reconstitute the ability to threaten the American homeland within one to two years from Afghanistan. And uh, you look at reporting from like Long War Journal and some of those folks, they argue that al-Qaeda has been pretty much intermeshed with uh, the Taliban and was actually instrumental in its military campaign to take back the country. What is your sense of the al-Qaeda resurgence, the potential for it, and the potential for them to pose a threat to the American homeland again? I wouldn't describe al-Qaeda as instrumental in this military campaign. Uh, the, the numbers are pretty small there now. But also, you know, when 9-11 happened, Afghanistan was the base them. Now we have several countries with much larger Al-Qaeda or ISIS presence, you know, from you know, Mali to Mozambique to South Philippines. On the other hand, the Taliban government knows why it lost power 20 years ago. It doesn't really want to go through that again. Does it mean they will actually give up the people the U.S. wants now? No. I mean, they have refused to give people up. 
will they exercise a much tighter degree of control over them to make sure they don't mess up the board emirate? Probably. The Taliban's, when they talk to us, they say, look, please, 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 we want to be friends with America. Don't, don't push us into Russian and Chinese hands because we really want to be friends with you, not with them. But you give us no option. So, I mean, they're playing that card somewhat skillfully right now. And, you know, ideologically, they're very different. You know, a lot of the Taliban are Sufis. They're not Salafis. They're quite strong Afghan nationalists. So, you know, they believe in the Afghan state as opposed to the global caliphate. And sort of sheltering Al-Qaeda at the time was also an act of desperation from them because they're one of the few people who are willing to help them in the civil war. Now there is no civil war. So at the time they needed their volunteers, now they don't. So I think the situation is very different from what it was in the 90s. So this is really fascinating. And I mean, I agree with you, you know, in the sense that what you see from the Taliban, you know, is obviously ideologically very different from Al-Qaeda. The only people who the Taliban have been killing in large numbers now were ISIS. When they would take a city, they would just execute all the ISIS prisoners and let all the regime people go. Well, I can't argue with that. <laughs> Possibly I should, but I can't. But, you know, the $64,000 question at the end of the day is, okay, they don't want to rely on the Chinese and the Russians. Don't push us into their hands. Don't put us in a position where, you know, we have to open up to Al-Qaeda. We are who we are. We're going to stand for what we stand for. But at the end of the day, there is a potential relationship with the West, with the United States, with others, with the UN, with Europe. How much of that is about their desire for the future and how much of that is about money? Well, both, right? I mean, they want to be able to govern for this, they need money and they want to be able to be a state among others. And what they say is that, look, you are so hung up about you know, women's rights, but you were perfectly happy to be friends with Saudi Arabia in the 90s, which was not very different from what they want to create in Afghanistan now. If anything, Afghanistan now is more liberal out of the Taliban than what Saudis were, you know, a decade ago. The Trump administration, you know, the Doha agreement where the one and only condition was we will not allow Afghanistan to be used against foreign country security anymore. There was nothing there about human rights, about women's rights or democracy. That was the one and only condition. Let's talk about the impact of all this on NATO. There were more NATO troops in Afghanistan than there were American troops at the end. This was really NATO's primary mission that it took on after the end of the Cold War, following Kosovo and the Yugoslav situation. And it ended in failure, and it ended in retreat. What do you think the impact of this whole collapse in Afghanistan is going to be on the NATO alliance? Limited, I think. I mean, the lesson learned is that his missions out of theater, which was launched out of this instinctive solidarity with the U.S., and the reason all these countries went there was because they wanted to be nice to the U.S., really. Not sure that you know Romania or Slovakia thought they really had strategic interest in Afghanistan at the time. A lot of his NATO troops didn't fight. There were lots of numbers, but the rules of engagement of some of these countries, like Germany, basically precluded them from any meaningful military contribution. You know, and I spoke to people in Eastern Europe, and what they say is that this was a time limit mission. You know, supposed to have ended in 2014. Most NATO troops left then. It's completely different from the legal commitments to defend an ally against a Russian aggression that the U.S. has. I mean, maybe they, it's wishful thinking on their part, but they do see a big difference. Yeah, no, I think they I think they do. I think that they're much angrier about the how than they are about the what. Yeah, yeah, everyone is, yes. I mean, it was carried out without any consultation with the Europeans, obviously, who were not able to evacuate, you know, their own embassy staffs in many cases. And it was but, completely unnecessary. 
Yeah, but we, you know, we see it again now, you know, with the, this whole Australian-UK submarine deal with the French. So if you speak to European politicians, they would tell you that they don't really see much difference between Trump and Biden in terms of actual ability or desire to consult with allies. I've heard the same. Maybe so, it's them, not us. <laughs> no, it's definitely us. So exit question for me is, so you were able to exit Afghanistan. There are a lot of Americans trying to get out, a lot of American green card holders, a lot of Afghan allies, planes sitting on the tarmac in Mazar and Sharif. Some are getting out, some are not. What's your assessment of the state of the post-evacuation evacuation? I don't think there are any planes sitting on the tarmac in Mazar and Sharif anymore, as far as I know. But the Qataris run every couple of days an evacuation flight. It's a Boeing 777. It has 300 plus seats. It's never full because they never get enough people. The Taliban do authorize American dual nationals and people with green cards to leave. So I was staying in the Syrian hotel. So every few days there were minibuses in the lobby, you know, with families coming in. And then the Qataris would take them in a car with the airport for them on a plane. It was one two days ago. That took more than 300 people. So this slow trickle continues. The issue with the Taliban is not Americans even though pretty much 99% of those who want to leave are dual citizens. But it's the it's the people who applied for special immigrant visas. It's people who don't have passports, and they cannot get passports because the passport office is still closed, who don't have a way out. They're not letting out ordinary Afghans who help the American effort. And that is probably the biggest source of friction right now. As well it should be. All right, I saved my question for lost that is the least geostrategic and consequential, but to me, fascinating. One of the things about reporting from the ground is that you do get a much more textured, a much more nuanced picture of these things. When I see your photographs and I see some of the narrative that goes along with it, you and a colleague who often is a photographer for the New York Post have done some really terrific work and noted the, the correlation between sneaker wearing and the kind of sneaker wearing and the nature of the individual wearing the sneakers and made an additional observation about the preening vanity of these young men who are in the Taliban. Fascinating. Would you share them with our audience? Yeah, well, you know, they really, really love to be photographed and they really like to pose. A lot of them have really long hair that they take care of. You know, we asked one of them (laughs) on the checkpoint, how do you achieve this look? Sort of look around and said, head and shoulders. Uh, <laughs> I have a teenage daughter who has much the same vanity. <laughs> yes. They take great care in sort of ornamentalizing their weapons. And the sort of the trademark show of the Taliban is this white high tops called service cheetahs that are made by a Pakistani company that have sort of reached a cult status, I think, by now in Afghanistan. So my personal observation is that, you know, the more people in a group wear those, the worse they will treat you. Probably it also correlates to how many of them have come straight from Pakistan as opposed to being locals. Interesting. So that's the big divide is that the Pakistani guys are in some ways, without overgeneralizing, they are the worst guys. Sometimes, yes. I mean, I mean it, it was really different, uh, sort of interesting going to two different provinces, to Logar and Ghazni. And in Ghazni, all the guys were from Helmand, Kandahar, Quetta, and they were really sort of hardcore and unpleasant. And in Logar, they were all like locals who've been fighting for the last 10 years, but came from the same villages, and they were much more open and relaxed and socially more progressive as well. So, for example, on a national level, high schools for girls haven't reopened, but they have reopened in parts of the country, like Mazar-e-Sharif, 
And we talked to a director of women's school. She said that, well, these Taliban are from here. So don't mind. Yarrow, uh, I'm glad that you're out. I'm glad that you stayed safe. But I'm also super delighted okay. that you were willing to share your time with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So, Danny, Yarrow was a little bit more bullish on the situation on the ground in Afghanistan than I expected. What do you think? I don't think he's bullish so much. And I don't, you know, obviously, I can't put words in his mouth. But I think he calls it as he sees it. And I think that this is a pretty pivotal moment. You can see who's on the ground, the Russians, the Chinese, the Pakistanis, the Turks. That doesn't give me a lot of optimism for the future. The other thing I think is really important is the comment that the museum director made where all of these pre-Islamic antiquities were kept. He said, you know, they took power in 1996, but they didn't destroy the Bamiyan Buddhas until 2001. I think that tells us a lot about the slow burn that goes on in these countries and the imperative of us working really, really hard, not just to ensure that the Afghans, well, the, the Taliban are aware of what we're going to be demanding, but that we are going to be watching them for risks that are presented to us. I really don't think we're up to that job. I don't think we're up to the job either, and I don't think that they're really going to change. A tiger doesn't change its stripes. We keep hearing about the moderate Taliban and the more radical Taliban. First of all, that's like saying moderate Nazis and extremist Nazis. They have a hateful, dangerous, violent ideology, and they wish they all shared. Some are more smiling than others. But I'm sorry, you, you don't agree. It's not that I don't agree. What Yarrow said really has made me think. He repeated an argument that they make and, and that others make, that the United States had a perfectly fine relationship for more than half a century with Saudi Arabia, even as Saudi Arabia was oppressing women, flogging gays, executing religious minorities. And that's true, but not just doing that, but supporting al-Qaeda directly, supporting the rise of Salafis. And I guess I ask myself, whether the simile is apt, can these guys at once pursue a policy that is not inimical to us, even as they implement their very strict Islamist ideology? I don't think so, because history suggests to me that that's not the case. And these are the same people who were there last time. It's no, not that's like the, there's that's a change. No, that's the point. So this is like the so-called moderates in the, in the government are not the people who emerged in positions of power. The prime minister was, I think, the foreign minister when they uh, were harboring Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. These are the same people. So I don't have a great deal of confidence in their ability to moderate themselves. I think that what they want is they want their money that we have frozen and they want certain things. And so they're going to put on a friendly face for a little while. But they are who they are. And I don't think that's going to change. Right. And the only reason I say it is because I think it's really important to, you know, to question our assumptions. And it was really interesting to me. You know, at the end of the day, unfortunately, I think it all shakes out exactly the way you described, exactly for the reasons you described. I wish there were a counter narrative that was persuasive. I think we're really going to have to watch closely. But I, I do respect the people I hear from who have been on the ground. It'll be very interesting to see who ends up on top in the decision making. What, what I'm less worried about is the, the makeup of the Taliban leadership initially than the implications way beyond Afghanistan. This is a defeat for America, unlike any we've seen since Vietnam. And we went through a very dark period after Vietnam, where America appeared to be in decline. The will of our population to confront what was then the global enemy, which was the Soviet Union. 
And the reality is, is that our enemies around the world were emboldened by our withdrawal from Vietnam. And I worry right now that our enemies around the world are emboldened as well, that China's going to be emboldened against Taiwan, that uh, North Korea is going to be emboldened, that Iran is going to be emboldened, that Russia is going to be emboldened against Eastern Europe because weakness is provocative. But the counterargument to that is that, look, in 1975, we pulled out of Saigon, and in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. And it was morning in America again. So the, you Well, know, so this, this, is, this is the big problem for us, of course, yeah. because I agree with every single word you just said. I think it is provocative. I think it's going to have genuine implications. I don't think we're up to even the small challenge of Afghanistan, let alone the larger challenge of China. I think they are going to test us and find us wanting. But let me say... After the fall of Vietnam, and you and I were around for that, although I perhaps was a slightly bit older than you and remember it, (laughs) but after the fall of Afghanistan, we went through the terrible period of the 1970s. We made terrible mistakes. Then the Soviets obviously invaded Afghanistan, but we had Ronald Reagan. I got to ask you, Mark, who's the Ronald Reagan of the 21st century? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Me neither. Uh, And uh, that's the problem for us. That, at the end of the day, is the problem for us. It really, you know, it, it just goes to show... I'm a big believer that, I mean, you know, Charles Crodhammer had a great column he wrote in the 1990s about American decline, and he said decline is a choice. We as conservatives don't believe in the inevitability of history, right? We believe that leadership matters. And it was really what turned it around was we had a leader who basically came into the White House and said, I have a theory about the Cold War, and it's simple but not simplistic. We win, they lose. And, you know, we don't have that kind of will. What happened with all this great cloning technology? We got Dolly the sheep. (laughs) Barbara Streisand cloned her puppy. But we can't Can't clone clone anybody useful. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, we shouldn't be laughing because this is obviously dead serious. There are still a lot of people out there who need our help. In our previous transcripts, we've linked to a bunch of organizations that are doing work for Afghans. We will, in this transcript, link to Yaroslav's great pieces in the Wall Street Journal. But we'll also add those organizations at the end. And just a teaser for next week, we have a truly very important, I think, sort of a groundbreaking book coming out from one of our colleagues at AEI, who should be familiar to all of you because we've had him on the podcast a couple of times. But Scott Gottlieb has a new book out. He's going to be joining the podcast next week. And we're looking forward to that and talking about something other than Afghanistan for the first time in a little while. Other good Uh, news. Wait, COVID. Excellent. (laughs) Let's go from one disaster to the other. We are covering all the disasters because there are so many of them to cover for you. Anyway, thanks for joining us. Take care, everyone. See you later. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 